Our scripture reading today will be Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. This is the word of God. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw them, uh, excuse me. Sorry, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was, uh, I'm gonna try that again. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, "May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money." You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, Zach. Uh, thanks, Clay. Uh, several years ago, uh, when I was uh, in college ministry, uh, I was at the Starbucks in the Union, and uh, there was a girl who was involved in our, in our ministry. Uh, she was uh, somewhat of, of a new believer, and she was there reading her Bible. And, uh, and as she was reading her Bible, I, I was talking to her, she was reading this passage that we just went over. And uh, she said she, she didn't understand something about it. And I was like, well, great, I'm in, the, I'm in the Bible business, I'll help you out. So I looked at it, and she had a specific question about it, and I said, I, I don't know. And I, I don't know if you caught it there, there's a, there's a problem in this passage that, that, that's kind of tricky. Um, and so, uh, so I've been working on it this week. Uh, yeah, let me go back, back in time. I just told her I didn't really know. I have to get back to her, and then I didn't, I think, probably, because uh, it's a tough passage. But uh, I have been working on it. Uh, I think I've, I've come to understand it, um, and, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll give it a go. So uh, before I, I dive into it, uh, I want to give uh, some, some history, some history of, of Israel, because I think we need to understand something. In order to understand this passage and what I'm persuaded is happening here, you need to understand some history. So, so we're going to back up to King David, and this is going to be a crazy long sermon, but I, I, I just want to set the table first. So there's King David, then there's King Solomon after him, his son. After King Solomon was King Rehoboam. 
Early in King Rehoboam's reign, he decided to be very harsh with the people of Israel. And the people of Israel did not like it. And so there's 12 tribes in Israel, and 10 of those tribes decided that they're, they're going to pull away from Israel. And so, that, so 10 tri- tribes uh, went away, and two tribes stayed. The, the, the tribes that went away were referred to as the northern kingdom, and the two tribes that stayed were referred to as the southern kingdom. And while the southern kingdom had its problems, the northern kingdom was way worse. And they would eventually be conquered by Assyria, and over time the Assyrians would move in, uh, so they weren't just, just conquered by them. They, they moved in there, uh, and they even began to have children with the Assyrians. And so many uh, of those in the southern kingdom viewed the northern kingdom as treasonous. They're, they're traitors. They, they were conquered by the Assyrians, and then they started family with the Assyrians. Uh, and, and, and this was, this was a, a big, them starting families together was, was, a, was a bigger deal than you might think. Um, and, and it's not just, just a race issue. So they were, they were marrying and having kids with people different than them. The, the issue was it was a, it was a law issue. Uh, the, the law of Moses forbid Jews marrying non-Jews. So similar to how the, the New Testament teaches that Christians should not marry non-Christians. So, so the Jews of the Northern Kingdom married outside of the faith, which was a breaking of the law. And they were weird about some other things too. For example, they didn't think the holy place was in Jerusalem. They thought it was in, in their land, in the certain mountain in, in their land. Um, and they didn't think Jerusalem was the true place of worship. Uh, so, so there is this big division between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And if you were to think of in, in our day that the Democrats and Republicans really dislike each other, well, this was just a lot more intense. And, and, and you might know already that Jesus uh, did not come from the northern kingdom. He came from the southern kingdom. There's several reasons for that. Uh, the, the northern kingdom uh, probably seemed to the southern kingdom like they were just distorting the faith. It seemed that way because they were. Um, they, were they were just a bad representation of what Israel was supposed to be. And even though the southern kingdom had its faults, which there were plenty of them, it was never, as, it was, it was, it was never quite as bad as the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was just a bigger mess all the time in worse ways. And uh, you might remember the story about Jesus and the woman at the well. You remember that? It's in John 4. So Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, and she's uh, a woman caught in adultery. Jesus says, you have five husbands. Uh, well, she was from the northern kingdom. And so, but this, this little parable isn't known as Jesus and the woman from the northern kingdom. You might know it if you were to turn to John 4 and look at the heading, you would see Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So the northern kingdom is also known as Samaria. The northern kingdom, Samaria, that's the same thing. And and you might compare the northern kingdom or Samaria with today's hyper-liberal church. And by hyper-liberal church, I don't mean they have a lot of folks that vote Democrat. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more like a Christian liberalism, the kind of, um, the kind of church that would reject the Bible, that would see it as outdated, and that we're kind of moving along, we're, we're progressing past th- those things. Uh, the, the kind of church that would support the LGBTQ agenda. They might have a pride flag on stage at their church. Uh, the kind of church that's more concerned about kind of keeping up with the trends of the world. So when something becomes like trendy and this, like kind of this cultural hot button issue, they, they're kind of going the way that the, the popular way of the world is going. And they would kind of say they're trying to be relevant for the world. This is how you reach the world. You become relevant to the world. And they are um, more concerned about the culture and the cultural trends than they are with what the Bible might be teaching. 
So you need to understand that the Jewish people in Acts saw Samaria as a problem. They were a problem historically, and they were still a problem in their day. And in order to understand our text, which might be the most difficult text in the whole book of Acts, you really need to understand how awful the Samaritans are and how much the Jewish people disliked them and did not trust them. And because they viewed the Samaritans this way, it made the spread of the gospel to Samaria a little bit awkward. It would be like for us hearing about a revival breaking out in a hyper-liberal, Bible-rejecting, LGBTQ-affirming church. You, you just wouldn't be quite sure what to do with that. You're like, I think, I think those people are off in several different ways and have been for a long time, but it seems like this really good thing is happening there, but I, you, you would probably wouldn't trust it. You're like, I bet it got watered down. I bet something happened that kind of made, it, made them kind of make a decision or whatever, but it's, it's probably not real. So, so today what I want to do, I want to focus on the gospel going to Samaria, what was good and what was not so good. And I want to spend most of our time on the Samaritans in general. And then I want to spend a little bit of time on Simon the Magician in particular. So, uh, so first, I just want to cover the Samaritans. All right, look at chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Uh, starting uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And there were many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So due to the persecution that arose in Jerusalem, remember last week Stephen got stoned, uh, Christians scattered. And while they scattered, they preached the gospel. And one place they scattered to was Samaria. And that's where Philip preached the gospel and great things happened. And we read in verse 9 through 13 that there was even a, a local, uh, local celebrity, Simon the magician, who believed Philip and was baptized. So things just seemed to be going awesome in Samaria. But it's still Samaria. And you got to remember that uh, Samaria, Samaritans are shady. Those guys are just the worst. And, and they were off about Jerusalem not being the holy place. They had weird views of scripture, like they only accepted the, the, the books of Moses. They didn't accept the, the writings. And a lot of that was because the writings weren't very nice to the northern kingdom. They kind of called out their sins. So it would have been very difficult for your average Jewish Christian in Jerusalem to hear about what was going on in Samaria and just assume that everything's totally legit. And the reason is, there's just too many things that are off about the Samaritans. I mean, you guys probably know of a people or a group of people or whatever, and if you were to hear about great things happening, you just might be a little bit suspicious. And you can maybe say, shame on us, but there's a history, there's a reason. So, so the Jewish people weren't crazy to be skeptical of the Samaritans, and which would have been hard for them to accept that everything was legit. Again, it would have been like a revival breaking out in a hyper-liberal, Bible-rejecting, LGBTQ LGBTQ affirming church, you would just be a bit suspicious if what's going on over there is legit. So let's look at what happens in verse 14 to 17. Verse 14 says this, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the tricky part, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Hmm. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then they lay their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Here's why this passage is difficult. This passage seems to communicate there are two stages to something that the rest of the the New Testament communicates there's only one stage to. The Samaritans believed the gospel and they were baptized. But according to the text, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit until the apostles came, laid hands on them and prayed for them. And the rest of the New Testament teaches that believing the gospel, that that when someone believes the gospel, they receive the spirit. It, It happens at the same time. It's not two stages. It's not two events. You believe the gospel and you are born of the spirit. So believing the gospel, having the spirit, same thing, same time. And this one passage separates them. And, and just to be clear, where the rest of the New Testament, I can share a lot of verses, I'm just going to share a couple, where the rest of the New Testament teaches that the, the, the spirit and belief come, at the, come together at the same time. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus called being born again, being born of the Spirit. So when someone believes the gospel, they're born again, they're born of the Spirit. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the, the categories we're getting is there's, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Yet in this, ta- this text in Acts, it seems like they believed, were baptized, and then later there was the Spirit. But Paul is saying, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, then you do not belong to God. You're not a Christian. Now, there's some debate about how this, uh, this might have gone down. Some might say that the first experience wasn't real, and then the second one was the true conversion where they, where they got the Spirit. Or, or, or maybe it was the other way around, that, that the first one was real, and then the second one was just kind of the, the experience of the, the Spirit. But, but I don't think our text gives us much room to say either one of those definitively. Uh, some of you guys uh, might come from a background that's more charismatic or Pentecostal, uh, and they would see this as the second baptism of the Holy Spirit or the second blessing. Uh, and they would, of course, cite this passage. Uh, many of you, and maybe some of you would, would say you've experienced this. Um, I remember hanging out with a guy one time, and he was kind of sharing his testimony. And then one little side, night, uh, one little side note of his testimony was when he was um, uh, baptized with the Spirit the, after conversion. Um, but um, one thing you should know about studying the Bible is that you need to be careful about building a doctrine off just one verse or one passage, especially if it's, not consist- uh, if it's not consistent throughout the New Testament. And so, so for those who would hold that, that, that you are, can have this second baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion, I would uh, respectfully disagree. Um, I, I think that we should seek baptism of the Holy Spirit. I, I would disagree that we should seek a baptism of the Holy Spirit after our conversion. And I think what the Samaritans experience here is unique to them. So I think this, what we're seeing happening with this delayed baptism of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is unique to the Samaritans. In, in a similar way, God did miracles through Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the apostles. 
And, and I don't think those are normative and that all Christians everywhere should experience miracles that way. I think God was doing unique things through his messengers to validate that they are his unique messengers for that time. And the reason I don't think we should expect to see miracles at the same level of, of those guys is because God was confirming uh, them as his messengers through these signs and miracles. And what we see happening in our text today is God confirming his work, not just in those who are his messengers, but in those who are actually receiving the message, the Samaritans. Remember, the Samaritans, just the worst. They're awful. They're like backwards on everything. And that is why, you see what Jesus told the parable, the good Samaritan, like it's ironic. It's a joke. It's, it's shocking. The good Samaritan. I mean, it's supposed to be shocking that the good guy is a Samaritan. So I'm persuaded that this extraordinary delayed baptism by the, of the spirit was to confirm what was happening among the Samaritans was legitimate. So in summary, here's what I think happened. Philip goes to Samaria, proclaims the gospel it goes really, really well. People come to faith and read in verse 8 that they are filled with much joy. But there would have been a high degree of skepticism among the Jewish Christians about the Samaritans. They would have wondered if it was legitimate or not. So they send the apostles, Peter and John, to go check it out. And a special sign is given to validate what happened there. And they are confirmed, therefore, by both the apostles and the Holy Spirit. So God was confirming his work in Samaria. So we have this picture of God confirming his messengers with these signs. And here I think God's confirming his work with the, those who are receiving the message. So I'm persuaded that this two-stage experience of believing the gospel and then later receiving the Holy Spirit is unique to Samaria. It's not normative for the church today. And so I don't think you, I don't think the Bible teaches that you should pursue this second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many of you might not have ever heard this before. Many of you are very familiar with this. Um, sometimes there's, there's a group of folks that, according to one tradition, they might feel a little bit pressure. Well, have you received the second baptism of the Holy Spirit? Have you, or they might call it the second blessing. And what I'm saying is, I don't think you need to pursue that. I don't think that's what this passage is, te is teaching. It seems to me that God was doing a unique thing to communicate to the church in Jerusalem and to the Samaritans themselves that they belong. These Samaritans that are such a mess, that are backwards on everything, they got a weird theology, they have all these crazy claims that don't make any sense, they got a weird history, they belong. They should be here, and I'm going to send the apostles and give them a, a, this unique thing with the Holy Spirit to confirm that. So forget about the northern and southern kingdom. You're now one in Christ. You belong to the church, Samaria. You are family. The um, British theologian Jeffrey Lamp was helpful when he put it this way. He said, at this turning point in the mission, something else was required in addition to the ordinary baptism of the converts. It had to be demonstrated to the Samaritans beyond any shadow of a doubt that they had really become members of the church in fellowship with the original pillars. An unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. So the Samaritans, with all their baggage and history of being on the wrong side of things, they're in. They belong to the church. They are a part of the family. They are in Christ just as much as anybody else. And nobody should doubt it because they receive the stamp of approval from both the apostles and the Holy Spirit. 
The Samaritans belong with us. They are a part of this family. Leave no doubt. There is no reason to think they aren't. They belong. And I think this can be encouraging for us because I think a lot of us might feel like we don't really belong. You know, um, some people might grow up, but they don't know a lot of Bible. Maybe they didn't go to church or weren't paying attention at church, or they just feel like they don't know anything. Or, or you might feel like you're uniquely bad, that you sin in ways that most people don't sin, uh, or that, that people don't really know uh, what you might struggle with. Some of you might feel like, you know, my theology, it doesn't seem quite as buttoned up as everybody else's. And I, I, don't, I don't feel like I can follow really well. I listen to sermons and it just sounds like, wah, 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 wah. I just have a hard time following. Or maybe you have a weird history that you feel odd about that kind of makes you feel like an outsider. Maybe you feel disqualified from the church because of some kind of sin you struggle with. Well, you need to know that if you are in Christ, you are in you are just as in as anybody else. And it's not because you're good enough or your weird stuff's not that weird. It probably is pretty weird. It probably is pretty bad. But you're not in because you're not weird or not bad. You're in because you're in Christ. And so you need to know that if you're in Christ, you belong. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and you belong in the church as much as anybody else. Now, let's look at Simon the Magician. So um, as a magician, uh, Simon was interested in having uh, special powers. We get a brief description of them in our text. Verse 9 says this, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. People were impressed. I mean, they were amazed is the word. When people talked about Simon, they would say things like, this man is the power of God that is called great. People paid attention to what he had to say because they were amazed by his magic. But now Philip and the apostles have come along and people are amazed with them and paying attention to what they have to say. And the power that they are showing really is the power of God. They're not just doing magic tricks. They're performing real miracles, and Simon wants in. So he makes them an offer in verse 18. He says this, or read this. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them, <clears throat> he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, out of all the commentaries I read, no one thought that Simon was truly a believer. Uh, that he was in the, the magic business, and, and he wanted to be the one with power. And power was what he was drawn to, not, not so much the gospel. And the apostles were undeniably in possession of some type of power. And that was what he wanted, so he made them an offer. How much is it going to set a fellow back to get some of that power y'all, y'all have? Well, this did not sit very well with Peter. He says this in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You know, one thing I've noticed about life is that money can be really helpful. It can get things done, it can make things happen, 
It can solve problems, and it can even create a lot of fun. The, the book of Ecclesiastes, about a year ago we studied this, but even surprisingly says that money answers everything. But it is clear that money cannot move the hand of God. The Holy Spirit cannot be bought. The power of God is not for sale. The work of God does not come with a price tag. The Spirit of God, the work of God, is a gift of pure grace. The Samaritans did not deserve it, and they got it, and a wealthy man could not buy it. And to think that we can move the hand of God with money or anything else is a wicked, wicked thing. In, in the 9th and 10th century, a, a wicked thing happened in the church known as simony or simony. Uh, it's named after Simon, the magician or passage here. Uh, and it was the practice of selling church offices or roles uh, to those willing to pay the price for it. Uh, and things like that still happen in the church. It's not like it was during this time. It's different. Uh, but there are people who give a lot to the church, and they expect a little something in return, namely some power or influence. Uh, and if they were to quit giving or leave, there would be uh, the, the church might not be sustainable, or things would definitely have to change. So the church leadership can begin to operate around keeping these people happy. And when the church begins to do that, it is a wicked, wicked thing. And may it never happen at Redeemer Church. But we could all fall in a, into a similar way of thinking, even if it's not about money. It's not like giving a lot of money to a church or anything like that. Um, maybe we're not trying to make an offer for the, for the power of the Spirit, or maybe we're not trying to use our money for, for influence in the church or anything like that. But maybe we operate with God in somewhat of a transactional way. I'll do my part, God, but then, of course, I expect a little something in return. If, if, if I do this, then God should return the favor. That's a wicked way of thinking. I'm pretty sure we all think that way, at least a little bit. If I do this, God owes me that. If you think God owes you anything, you're off. That thought does not need to come into your mind. The only thing that God owes us is death and hell. And anything less than that is pure grace undeserved. The Samaritans were a mess. They did not do anything to provoke God's grace to fall on them. But it did. And you might even go so far as to say that God allowed his guy, Stephen, to have stones thrown at him until his heart stopped beating just so that the gospel would go to these wicked Samaritans. Grace cannot be earned, and if it could, then grace would no longer be grace. So, may God help us to be more like the messed up Samaritans and less like Simon, that we would be looking more to God's mercy than what we can bring to the table or what God might owe us. And in that, maybe we might be a little surprised that God would include us. All of us have plenty of reasons to not be included in the family of God. But through the work of Christ, he did include us. And if we can be surprised by grace, genuinely feel undeserving of God's grace, then we might just find what the Samaritans found in verse 8. Much joy. May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your 
kindness to wicked people. The Samaritans were very much off. We were very much off. You saved us, not because we cleaned up, but you saved us while we were still sinners. You moved towards us before we began to move towards you. And so would you help us to understand grace? Would you help us to see that we bring nothing to the table but sin and rebellion? Uh, and that everything good that we have is just a pure sign of your grace towards us. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.